Good morning and good afternoon and welcome to The Check-In. My name is David Cadabaugh. Today is August 5th, 2021, and I am checking in from Washington, D.C. Today we have a small group on The Check-In. A bunch of the Tello staff are on vacation, but we are really excited for the group that we have today. We have Sarah with us. Sarah, where are you checking in from? Good morning from Vermont. And we are very excited to also have a special guest, Suhad. Suhad, where are you checking in from? I'm calling in from Washington, DC. Great, well Suhad Baba is a producer, news publisher, media strategist, human rights advocate, and the executive director of Just Vision, an organization that fills a media gap on Israel-Palestine through independent storytelling and strategic audience engagement. Suhad is here to help us understand recent events surrounding Sheikh Jarrah, and we are really honored to have her with us. Thanks for being here today, Suhad. Thank you. It's such a pleasure, David. So Sheikh Jarrah has been in the news a lot since May. It's at the center of events you may have kept up with or heard about in news headlines or at events happening in Gaza, in Jerusalem, at the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And it's a small neighborhood of mostly Palestinian families in East Jerusalem. And the focus on it centers around a case involving four Palestinian families living in the neighborhood. For the past several decades, they've been fighting a legal battle to stay in their homes. So who's on the other side of this battle? A company called Nahlat Shimon, whose goal is to increase Jewish settlement in East Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah. They're seeking to evict the families currently living in the neighborhood so that Jewish families can move in. Before we dive into Suhad's analysis, I want to give a really quick historical overview so our listeners who haven't been following this as closely understand what we're talking about. So what's at stake? About 100 Palestinians are at risk of being forcibly removed from their homes and left homeless, despite living in Sheshurai and their homes for generations. These families moved in after being made refugees in 1948, around the creation of the State of Israel, which Palestinians also call the Nakba or Catastrophe, where three-fourths of indigenous Palestinians were either killed or expelled, and Jordan began controlling the area. With these families in question, the Jordanian government gave them the homes they're in in exchange for giving up their protected status as refugees in 1956. Since 1967, Israel has occupied East Jerusalem, and Nahalat Shimon says they bought the land from Jews who owned it before 1948, when many Jews also fled the area. So now, Israel applies its laws to East Jerusalem, even though it's occupied territory, and in Israel, Jews can complain... Jews can claim property ownership owned before 1948, but Palestinians cannot. So there's a real unequal application of legal rights. Bringing us up to Monday, on Monday, the Israeli High Court of Justice offered a proposal to the parties to try and resolve this case. The families could stay in their homes as quote-unquote protected tenants for three generations, but would have to recognize ownership by Nahalat Shimon and pay a symbolic rent to the organization. The parties involved have a week to respond, and when we're recording this, have not yet done so. So, Suhad, many have followed the family of Muhammad al-Kurd through these events. His family is one of the four in the case who are at risk of being forcibly removed from their homes. And we showcased this story actually just last week in a recent screening of your documentary, My Neighborhood. And I'm curious, how is Muhammad's family responding to the proposal, and what does all this mean for them? Thanks for the question, David. Muhammad's family is incredibly resilient, um, the El-Kurd family. Um, They've been, as you mentioned earlier, Sarah and David, 
um, they've been in what is actually a decades-long struggle to stay in their homes. Um, and they, together with the community in Shikshara, have been organizing um, a grassroots campaign, both locally and internationally, to put attention to what's happening um, and, res- and how the community is responding as they try to, sit- to save Shikshara. Um, so the, thus far, the community has been deeply, deeply unified um, in many respects, um, and it's been incredible to see, you know, this grassroots campaigning is really driven by youth like Mohammed Al-Kurd. You know, I know him um, since, you know, I've known him since he was about, you know, 11 years old. Um, and I've seen him grow up to become this 23-year-old young man who is um, a voice for his community alongside people like his sister, Muna Al-Kurd, and other young Palestinians who are really um, both calling on other Palestinian communities and allies locally in Israel-Palestine to stand with Sheikh Sharah and the galvanizing the entire world um, to be paying attention to what is otherwise a very tiny neighborhood. We're talking about 28 families um, that originally live um, on the plot of land that is currently um, being questioned and trying to be taken over by the Israeli settler organizations. Suhad, you mentioned the unity across Palestinian communities. And I think it's important to note, too, that similar questions of land dispossession and settler takeovers are happening in other areas of Jerusalem and the West Bank, not too far from Sheshara in Silwan. What are the implications of this decision classifying Palestinians as protected tenants while giving legal land ownership to Israeli settlers? And what kind of harmful precedent does this set for other communities who are facing similar struggles? Well, I think, you know, just to take a zoom out, what we know is that what's happening in Shikshara, in Silwan, in Wadi Joes, um, across the West Bank, um, and in communities within Israel, Palestinian communities within Israel, like Yaffa, for example, um, all take various forms of kind of legal strategies and tactics to displace entire populations of Palestinian residents who have been living there. Um, And so those legal mechanisms look very different. It looks different in Silwan and it looks different in Sheikh Shara. But if you actually look at the forest and not the trees, what we know is that there is um, a defiance of international law that finds all of this displacement across East Jerusalem illegal. and also um, an unequal application of basic local laws in order to justify what's happening. Um, in the case of um, the Sheikh Shara and the, the specificity around protected tenants, um, what the court is asking or pressuring the Palestinian residents to do, um, not unlike you know the first time around where they were asked slash pressured into Um, giving up their rights as refugees back in the 1950s, the courts are once again saying to them, give up your rights. We don't we don't want to be the ones to do it because we'll get too much international condemnation for it. Um, So why don't you just roll over and say, you know what, it's fine. Take my rights away. Um, The Israeli settler organization can go ahead and and be the owners of the land. They will be our landlords um, until whoever is Um, identified as the protected tenant, um, but essentially passes away. Um, What a dark and cynical um, solution, in my view. I'm curious to know, how did the settler organization respond to the proposal? Um, Thus far, you know, the, from, you know, Nahalat 
um, International, Shimon International, they've been doing this for since the 1970s. So um, this is something where, uh, you know, I have not been in direct touch with the organization. Um, but what we do know is that they, it is in their interest to be named the landowners um, of, of these homes. Yeah, that's important, especially just thinking about the ways in which everything that's happening is spoken about so differently between the two communities. For instance, this organization calls what's happening a real estate dispute. And what many don't see is that there's the fundamental asymmetry at play, as you spoke about, between the ways in which the laws of the land apply to Jewish Israelis versus Palestinians, even those who are citizens of Israel. And you spoke a little bit about that, but for those unfamiliar, can you help us understand that asymmetry, particularly around the rights of land and property ownership and how it affects the lives of those on the ground? Or in other words, why is this not a real estate dispute? So the Israeli settler organizations, Israeli settlers who um, are making claims to the land in East Jerusalem are relying on a local law that allows for Jewish Israelis to make claims to lands pre-1948, as Sarah mentioned. Um, Palestinians have no equivalent right. Um, in fact, um, the state of Israel um, you know, has no interest in allowing for Palestinian refugees to be able to return um, um, to their homes. Um, that would create a huge conundrum for the state of Israel. As Sarah mentioned earlier, hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were um, dispossessed and displaced in 1948, um, and um, thousands upon thousands more since then have been displaced um, at, under um, occupation and inequality. So, um, so that's the kind of precedent, you know, the, the unequal precedent that's set. And I think it's really important for us to take a step back on this and recognize that, you know, oftentimes laws are, are just a reflection of where a society is or where a political issue is at a given time. Um, we've seen unjust laws, entire systems built to justify injustice and inhumane treatment. Um, we've seen that in the Jim Crow South. We've sat, seen that in South, South Africa in apartheid. Um, and this is no different. Um, and so that's really kind of when we look at the big picture, that's, that's, really important for us to keep in mind. Um, I think the the piece around kind of insisting that this is a real estate is meant to obfuscate that reality. Um, and it's meant to confuse. And I think that's why it's so important for us to all keep our eyes on the big picture on this one. That's really helpful insight. And in light of trying to keep our eyes on the big picture and not just the particulars in this case, one of the Israeli judges who presided over the case, Justice Isaac Ahmet, said, quote, this compromise will provide breathing space of a few good years. Until then, either there will be a real estate agreement or peace will come. We do not know what will happen. Is it possible to sum up this matter? End quote. So Suhad, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why the proposed outcome isn't breathing space for Palestinians, given that land dispossession and unequal application of the law are bigger issues, as you said, than just this case. And how would you respond to that question of whether it's possible to, quote, sum up this matter, especially knowing that without understanding the nuances we're unpacking today, international audiences might see this outcome as an adequate solution? When was the last time we we heard this? I mean, we keep hearing this from Israeli government officials time after time, right? I mean, let's think about the Oslo agreements. There was also a similar rationale applied about not identifying any benchmarks 
for um, kind of the establishment of a Palestinian state um, with the kind of rationale of we'll eventually work this out. Um, so, you know, and what have you. That never actually came. I mean, look at us now. We're how many decades later? Um, and you're absolutely right, Sarah. I mean, you know, the Oslo agreements, which today is understood by those who have been following this issue on from multiple communities and multiple vantage points and a diverse range of uh, both political leaders and community leaders, also is recognized as a sham, right? Um, and, um, and, and, and being a huge problem in actuality that we need to be able to learn from. Um, this is similar in its rationale. It's the, the notion of let's buy ourselves some time until we can work it out when in, in fact what is happening is Palestinians are being forced and pressured to give up their rights. Um, and we haven't seen um, an Israeli government that um, is willing to actually come to a fair and just solution. So I think, you know, first and foremost, we just have to call it what it is, you know, and recognize that this is a means of buying time for the Israeli government with the hopes that the international community forgets. Um, and, and that's something that Palestinians have learned from time and time again. You know, this is not the, for the first time the Israeli high court is um, asking and pressuring the Palestinian families to, to give up their rights. They did the same thing in May when they told the settler organization and um, the Palestinian residents to come to a compromise. And at that point, the Palestinian residents said very clearly, um, we know what this is about. We aren't going to give up our rights. Um, and they galvanized. And indeed, we saw what happened. You had Palestinians from all over Israel and the occupied Palestinian territories recognizing that this is a continuation of a systematic displacement of Palestinians from the land, whether it's in Shikshara or Silwan or places um, across the West Bank, like South Hebron Hills, um, or kind of a treatment of second class citizens for even Palestinian citizens of Israel. Right. And so so I think that's just um, something for us to all keep our eyes on. And as an international audience, what I deeply um, encourage our audience and communities to be thinking about is who are the most impacted by these policies? No, I think that's such an important point, um, especially just with the, the nature of the fact that these families have been fighting this case for decades and continuously have had the case delayed and delayed until, you know, international communities forget. And I think that's also just a, a point to remember for us as international audiences that we have a level of agency at, at some point the way that we speak about this, the way that we amplify the voices of those on the ground, like Muhammad and his family, in a way that actually impacts what happens over there. But I want to come back to to your discussion just now about pragmatism. In fact, the Justice, um, Justice Amit said when he offered the proposal, quote, what we are saying is let's bring this down from the level of principles to a pragmatic level. People should be able to continue living there that's the idea, to try and reach a practical arrangement without making declarations of one kind or another, end quote. And at one level, I think I can empathize with this approach of wanting to find some kind of, you know, quote unquote, compromise. But at the same time as you're speaking, it reminds me of that famous MLK Jr. quote, peace is not merely the absence of tension, but the presence of justice. And, that, and that's why justice is one of our principles of peacemaking. And this is a really clear example to me, kind of what you're saying of how there can be a solution that's offered that would ease the tension, but not necessarily bring justice. And we, when we move down from the level of principles, as he's saying, 
of, of what's right and good and fair just to a level of pragmatism, we risk losing something absolutely essential along the way. So I'm curious, what does a, a just solution in this case actually look like? A, a solution that moves us closer to a future of of justice and rights for these families and mutual flourishing in Israel-Palestine? You know, I think at the end of the day, what is being called for by Palestinians is quite simple and actually like a human instinct. Folks are calling for a rights-respecting reality. That means whether I'm Israeli or Palestinian, as a human being, I deserve the same rights as every other human being. Um, and that is what is central to any, you know, any just solution on what's happening in Israel-Palestine will hold that sacred. Um, in this case, I think that the, the, you know, I do want to comment about this, this relationship between pragmatism and what is just, right? And I think so often um, the, the language of what is pragmatic is, in this case, in the, in the favor of those in power, how do we need how what can we do to to not have to deal with any of these things and continue to take power and more power and more power at the expense of human beings and and their communities um, and I think even the language of pragmatic um, creates this illusion that um, someone is being level headed and even keeled um, well, if you're Palestinian, can you really be level-headed and even-keeled about this decision in the first place? But in the second place, I mean, look at what these families have been through. The 28 families in Shikshara have been through. Um, they have been put through the ringer for decades. They have lost their homes once. Um, they are under threat of losing their homes again. They are surrounded by what is essentially military forces, Israeli forces, around the neighborhood of Sheikh Shira almost 24 hours a day, entering into their own community, which is a tiny community. You know, like I had, we had offices in Sheikh Shira. Um, I could walk down the street um, from our office to their homes. It is a tiny, it's like the radius of a couple of blocks, right? 28 families, 28 homes. Um, and simply leaving that space, you and coming back in, if you're a Palestinian resident, you have to go through Israeli forces right now. If you're an Israeli settler, the Israeli forces don't even question you. Um, does that sound pragmatic? During Ramadan, the holiest month of the year for Palestinians in that who are Muslim, um, and for the community in Sheikh Shara, largely Muslim, um, they couldn't even leave their homes to go get groceries to break their fast without the fear of Israeli settlers taking over their homes. To me, this doesn't sound pragmatic, as I said earlier, right? And I think this is something that we really need to be clear about. Pragmatic for whom? For those in power to not have to deal with this? That's what it sounds like to me. For those of us who are following this, who empathize with everything you've just said, who are frustrated that this is the outcome, what do you think the decision will be on the part of the families who live in Sheshura? And what, what do you think we'll see in the next few days and weeks unplaying or unfolding? You know, thus far, the, the vast majority of the community has been very clear that um, they plan on staying in their homes. They don't plan on giving up um, their rights. Um, they were already asked once um, by the Israeli courts um, to come to this so-called compromise. And, and I think that um, it wouldn't be surprising if they came back again and again and again to say, we will not accept this. You know, and, and the reality is that, you know, and as Mohammed al-Kur talks about, 
um, in his view and in the resident's view, the Israeli high courts are trying to evade having to make a ruling, recognizing that there will be international attention on their ruling um, if they choose to evict, so-called evict families from their homes. Um, and I think um, it's important to just keep that in mind. Um, you know, I the the as as David mentioned earlier, the strategy of kind of elongating these so-called legal processes to wear down um, the residents, the Palestinian residents, um, with the hopes that grassroots movements like the one that we saw emerge around Sheikh Jarrah over the last several months um, dies down is a long-held strategy by the Israeli government and others in power. And so really when we talk about, you know, what can we do? As a as a community who cares about what's happening in Shikshara, continue to raise attention to what's happening in Shikshara. Don't let it go away. Um, talk to your families about it. Talk to your friends and community members about it. Talk to those with influence. Um, and by influence, think creatively. I mean, they're your teachers. They're um, your local elected officials. They are um, certainly congressional leaders and the administration and so on, but it starts locally. Um, so keep changing the conversation. The conversation is changing slowly. Um, and one way to, to do that is just making sure that Sheikh Shara stays on the international map. I think um, the other piece is to, you know, continue to ask the question, you know, the the legal um, case cases are are intended to confuse, they're intended to obfuscate, they're intended to make it seem like um, there's some kind of process of justice. Um, and what we know is that there aren't processes of justice for Palestinians under an inherently unequal system. And so when we, when we're, as we're following these cases, I think it just behooves us to continue to kind of come to it with a critical eye um, and ask the question of who's benefiting for whose pragmatism, you know, for whose dignity are we really actually um, making these decisions? Um, and and how do we um, continue to not just um, understand it in the case of Sheikh Shara, but really understand it systemically? Um, what's happening in Sheikh Shara, sadly, um, doesn't get resolved. And this is the one area that I would agree with the judge, right? Doesn't get resolved until there's a real systematic rights-respecting approach that's put into place for all communities in Israel-Palestine. And that certainly means Palestinian communities. Absolutely. And I really appreciate, Suhad, you mentioning the role we as Americans have to play in this and the call to action for folks listening to, to start talking about this, to keep Sheikh Shirah in people's minds and to not let this die out. And I thought it was really telling that a, a day or two after this decision was handed out, it also came out that Israeli officials had put pressure on the U.S., to in turn put pressure on Palestinians to accept this deal. And you mentioned Oslo earlier, and I think it's important for us as Americans, you know, sitting over here, caring about an issue that feels really far away, to recognize the role the U.S. has historically played in enabled ongoing inequality and disenfranchisement of Palestinians and continues to play today. And so everything you said about uh, getting active in your communities, having these conversations, keeping these questions open is really important for our listeners to take away that this feels far away, but we can start making an impact right here at home in our communities. And one thing you can do right now, in fact, is to go and if you haven't seen it yet, watch um, the recording of My Neighborhood, which is a short film about Sheikh Jarrah and Mohammed Al-Kurd's family um, that Just Vision put out. 
Um, and also, you can watch a discussion that Suhad and myself had just last week about that film, and I'll include a link to that in the show notes. But I know we are running out of time, so I just wanted to say thank you, Suhad, for joining us today. We really appreciate your insight and all the work that you are doing, and we are very thankful that you were able to join us this morning. Thank you so much, David, Sarah. I hope you guys have a wonderful day. Um, thank you for having me and putting um, a spotlight on this really important development in Sheikh Shara, and it's such a pleasure. We'll see you all next week. Thanks for listening. <laughs>